following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Before we read our section for today, I thought I would take a moment here at the outset to just kind of explain um, how this is going to work for those of you who maybe haven't been here in the past as we have worked through a book study, because I think we do things a little bit different. When we work through a book, like we're going to do here in Mark, we go through it verse by verse, right? You, you get that part. But verses come in paragraphs, and paragraphs come in sections. And so we, we want to uh, do honor to those things because we call those pieces the context, correct? And context is very important. In fact, there's a little saying that I learned in seminary that I've shared with us on multiple occasions. Let's see how many of you remember it. Uh, eh, never mind. I'll just give it to you, and then you can uh, go from there. The saying was this, that a text without a context is a pretext for pretty much anything you want it to be. Okay, So I can take a verse of scripture out of its context, forget the context completely, and I can pretty much make it say whatever I want. If I did that, I'd be called a televangelist. Thank you. Um, we don't, we don't want to do that, right? We want the context to be important because it is, and we want to give it a level of importance even in our preaching. And so long ago, we started the practice of as we're working through a book and we're, we're going to be looking at a verse or two or three or whatever, we make it a practice at the very beginning to read the entire section that we find it in. That's because we want to make sure we keep it all in its context. And so, for example, today we're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, because this is the first identifiable section of Mark, but, but we're only actually going to look at verse 1, finally. I already got a comment about that, but we're going to look at verse 1 finally today. And we're going to keep doing that week after week until we finish this entire section. And when we're done with that section, we'll Go to the next one, and sometimes these sections will be long, sometimes they'll be short, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, because we want to make sure we give honor to the context. So, now that you understand what we're doing, why, let's read verses 1 to 13, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1 begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Pair the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are excited today to finally begin working through the text of this book. We have prepared our hearts for it. We have tried to understand where it fits in the larger story of what you're doing in this world. And it is our hope that at this point now we are ready to dig in and begin this process of of walking these roads with you 
of listening to your teaching, of watching your miracles, of seeing how you live and, and who you are and, and why you came. Lord, this is what we want. This is why we've come to the book of Mark next, to see you and to know you. And so today, Father, will you help us do that very thing? Will you help us to know your son, Jesus, to understand who he is, to to weed out of our minds and our hearts any misconceptions about him, any, any comfort we may have gained over the years from hearing his name so much. We want to be startled by him today. We want to see him with fresh eyes today to understand who he is anew. And so, Jesus, we come to you and we ask, show us yourself. Help us see you for who you really are, or not just today, but over these next several weeks as we step into the pages of, of this book and try to come to know you like we never have before. We, we have already recognized that if we can do this, we will not walk away the same. Because no man comes face to face with you and leaves unchanged. We will have to make decisions. We will have to change. And so we want that. We, we welcome that. And we come asking today that you will help us to do that. May your spirit open the eyes and minds of, of those who are listening in my own eyes and mind and heart as well. Help us to be sensitive to what you're doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Generally speaking, I try my best to avoid talking about Jamie and the kids publicly in, in sermons and stuff more than I should. Obviously, I can't avoid it completely because they're a huge part of my life, and so it would be odd if I never mentioned them at all. But, but generally speaking, I've tried to keep it in its proper place. Uh, that's particularly true when it comes to, uh, let's say, marital problems that Jamie and I might uh, have had at points in the past. But today, since she's not in here, I'm going to let you in on one of those marital problems. It's been going on for 12 years now. And it has to do when we watch movies or television shows that either A, I have seen but she has not, or B, some, a movie or television show that I know something about, like maybe it's a true story and I've read about it or I know about it from the past, but she doesn't know anything about it at all. These are the scenarios where we have problems. It, it always works out something like this, that we start watching the movie and when we begin, everything's fine. We're just sitting there quietly watching the movie together. But as soon as some bit of tension is introduced into the story, she immediately turns to me and says, so what's going to happen? D does he make it? Is he going to live? Do they, get do they get away? Who's the bad guy? What's, what's going to happen? And, and I, I'm assuming by the laughter this is not an uncommon experience. Um, I, being the loving, kind, patient husband that I am, would turn to her and say, you just have to wait and find out. And always in that tone, too. Okay, Never was anything different than that. For whatever reason, though, that never satisfies her questions. And so she would keep asking, and I would keep avoiding it, saying you've got to wait and find out what happens, and you can kind of imagine the rest. Um, we've been married for 12 years now, and only two things have changed in regards to this in 12 years. First, nowadays when she asks me what's going to happen, I don't even respond. It's, it's as if she didn't even speak. I, and, and let's be clear, I, apart from this, never purposefully ignore my wife. But in this moment, let's be clear, I am purposefully ignoring my wife. But, but she's actually okay with that because the second thing that's changed in 12 years is the presence of her iPhone and her iPad. And so if she is really desperate to spoil the story for herself, she will ignore me in return, pick up her iPad, and 
get the answer for herself. Now, I'm curious, does this describe any other couples in here? Raise your hand if, uh, if this happened. Which one is the curious person? Raise your hand if you're the curious one. Okay, I see. Well, hey, I got, I've got good news for all of you who are honest enough to admit it. Um, if you're the kind of person who likes to spoil the story in advance for yourself, Mark is the perfect book for you, okay? But before I explain why that is, let me show you how we're going to break this book up for our study. The book of Mark can basically be broken into three main sections. It begins with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And you're kind of familiar with this by now, I think, particularly if you were here during our study of Genesis. Genesis begins the same way. It begins with a prologue, sort of introducing the story, helping you figure out where you're at within within what the author is trying to do. And Mark does this as well, and I'll talk more about this prologue in just a moment. Then beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, all the way until the end of chapter 15, you have the account of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, obviously, this is the vast, vast majority of the book, and it's really just one single section. It's one very long section that takes you from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee all the way to his burial. And so because it's so big, We're going to have to break it into some smaller chunks as we work through it to make it a little bit more manageable. Generally speaking, we'll we'll break it into two parts. Part one will deal with his ministry in and around Galilee. That'll take you from chapter 1, verse 14, up until about chapter 8, verse 30. The second part will deal with Jesus' journey to the cross. That's chapter 8, verse 31, all the way into the end of chapter 15. And then as we work through those, we'll keep breaking those up into smaller parts as well. And, And I'll point something out now about this section that I will repeat, no doubt, as we get to the end of it, that when you finish, what is wrong with this television? When you finish, thank you, when you finish the end of chapter 15, it ends the way you would expect any normal story to end, with the death and burial of the main character. Thankfully, that's not the final section of Mark, because beginning in chapter 16, you come to a third section, it's basically an epilogue, where you see that the story isn't done. The one who was dead and buried at the end of chapter 15 is alive again, and the story goes on. So this is how we're going to break it up, work through it over the next several months. And today, of course, we're beginning with the prologue. And if you don't, and you're probably sitting there thinking, why is he making such a big deal about the the way we're going to break this up, and why does the prologue matter so much? Well, here's why. If you don't understand what this prologue is doing here in Mark, then you will miss out on much of what Mark wants you to see as he unfolds this book. You see, in the prologue, Mark wants to spoil the story for his readers. He wants to spoil it. That's why I said that Mark's the perfect book for the, those of you in here who said that you don't like to wait until the end to find out what happens. He wants you to see at the very beginning what is going to happen throughout the rest of this book. He doesn't want any mysteries, any surprises. He, he wants it all out there right at the beginning. And so in the prologue, he's going to lay it out right up front. And here's what he wants you to know. He wants you to know that this man, Jesus, is the promise-fulfilling spirit-anointed, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. Okay, this is what the prologue is about, that he is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-anointed, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. And so since this is what the prologue is about, he introduces us to this man, Jesus, here in the prologue, beginning with a very amazing uh, statement about him right here in verse 1. Some people have called verse 1 the true title of Mark. 
Remember, Mark has no title. We don't even know who the author is. He never tells us anywhere in the book what his name is. And so we have called it the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel according to Mark. But that title is not in the Scriptures. A lot of people look at verse 1 and think this is the real title of the book. And one of the reasons they think that is there's no verbs there. It's a series of nouns and prepositional statements. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so they assume it's a title. And maybe it is. Others say it's not the title, but it's the theme verse of the book. That could be as well. Regardless of which way you understand it, one thing is 100% clear. That this opening verse serves a dual purpose within the book of Mark. One, it introduces the prologue. It wants to introduce us to this Jesus who is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-anointed, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. It wants to introduce us to this man, but it also wants to introduce us to the, to the book as a whole, to understand what the whole book is going to be about. And as such, I think it would serve us well today to consider these opening words of Mark's story to see what we can learn about this man, Jesus. There are four words here in this opening verse that you need to think through very carefully today. Let's do that together. First, let's think about the name Jesus. Now, we're so familiar with this name that we have lost all concept of its significance. To many Americans, it's either a profanity, as it was used with me on Friday with my neighbor. You know, he's an unbeliever, doesn't know. So he's just standing there talking, and he's da-da-da, just throws it out there. It's either profanity or it's a trite answer to a Sunday school question that everyone learns at some point in their youth. But either way you look at it, outside of those two usages, most people in America seldom hear or use the name in its truly significant way. But it is a significant name. You may or may not be aware of this, but Jesus is not the name he was called by his parents. Okay, that, the, the name Jesus listen carefully, is an anglicized pronunciation of a Latinized transliteration of a Greek translation of his Aramaic name. Okay, did you follow that? Uh, Here, I'll show it to you. Uh, Here's his real name in Aramaic, his Yeshua, okay? This is his Aramaic name. That name was translated by our New Testament writers into Greek because their readers don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. They they spoke, spoke Greek, and so it was translated into Jesus, but when the Bible was translated into Latin, they transliterated that into Latin, and it became Jesus, which in English is pronounced Jesus. Okay, so there's your, your train. Now, how you pronounce it isn't really that important. What's important is who you're referencing. And the name Yeshua tells us something about who it is that we're referencing here. In Matthew 1, we learn that his name was not chosen by Joseph and Mary out of some first century baby name book. They're like Zedekiah, no, Barabbas, no, Jesus, that's the one we'll go with. That's, that's not the method they, they used to pick his name. It was chosen by God himself, by God himself and communicated to them by an angel before he'd even been born. While Joseph is sleeping one night, an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now note, not only does the angel tell him what to name this child, but he explains to him why the name is chosen in the first place. The name Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. And this child that will be conceived in the womb of a virgin 
will be proof of this, that God really is salvation, that this child will save his people from their sins. His very name indicates that this is no ordinary child and that this will be no ordinary man, that God will work through this child to save mankind. And so the very first thing we learn about this main character of the book of Mark is that it is God who is working through him to bring about salvation for humanity. This man will be the Savior. He will pay for their sins. Next, let's look at the word Christ. The word Christ. And if you've taken the new members class with me in the past, you have heard some of what I'm about to say, but I'm going to build on it more than I ever have in that class. But it's important you understand right off the bat that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? He wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. He wasn't, you know, when they were answering the phone with telemarketers calling at dinner time, hello, it's the Christ residence. You know, that's not what they're doing. Christ isn't a name. What is it? It's a title. Okay, it's a title. And the word Christ simply means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah, and it was a loaded term in Mark's day that carried with it many presuppositions and misconceptions. For the Jews of Jesus' day, it was the term, excuse me, the term Christ or Messiah was a title of the one anointed by God to carry out specific tasks, to do specific things in relation to the liberation of Israel. David Garland, a commentator on Mark, wrote this, quote, that there was general agreement that the Messiah would be Moses-like in delivering the nation of Israel, that he would establish his throne in Jerusalem like David, that he would smash those who made the people suffer as did the saviors of old, and that he would rule with justice and restore the lost fortunes of the nation. Like Cyrus, also identified as God's anointed, the Messiah would subdue nations before him and make kings run in his service. No longer would Israel be the footstool of heathen overlords, but would take its proper place of ascendancy in the world. They had pretty high hopes for what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to free Israel from Rome. He was going to rule the world. He was going to make Israel the greatest nation on earth. And so, obviously, to come along and proclaim that a man who had been crucified by the Romans was the Christ went completely against everything that the Jews had ever expected. It sounded strange to Jewish ears to talk about a crucified Messiah That makes no sense at all. It was strange to their ears. Well, guess what? It was strange to Roman ears as well. This Christ, this anointed one, had accomplished nothing of value in the Roman mind. He had won no victories other than spiritual ones, which didn't count. He he wasn't some great political leader. He was a minor figure in a backwater province under control of the Roman legions. And within just a few years of this, the Roman armies are going to sweep in and destroy this place. He's nothing. And if all of that wasn't enough, like the Jews, they look at the fact that he was crucified as a criminal on on a Roman cross. And they say, this is God's anointed one? From, From a Jewish standpoint... A crucified Messiah, think of those words together, crucified Messiah. From a Jewish standpoint, a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. It made no sense at all in their mind. It didn't fit anything that they had expected or hoped for. And from a Roman perspective, a crucified Christ was a failure in every single way. 
Paul himself is going to recognize these inconsistencies later in a most memorable way. In 1 Corinthians 1, he's going to write, but we preach what? Christ crucified. Notice he puts those words together. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He understands what he's saying, that it makes no sense to anyone in his culture. But for us, for us, we're removed from that culture, and to call this man Jesus the Christ, it it means nothing to us. Those words just roll off our tongues without question or concern. But, But for Mark, at the beginning of his book, to call this man Jesus the Christ was either scandalous, stupid, or both. And yet Mark doesn't care. In fact, he's writing this entire book to prove that this man Jesus is indeed the Christ, the promised one from God, the anointed Savior who would set his people free, just not in the way that they had expected. Third, let's consider this phrase, Son of God. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in calling him this, Mark is affirming a statement about this man Jesus that will ironically, later on in the book, get him killed. Um, In Mark 14, Jesus is standing before the Jewish council. Okay, we're already into the crucifixion uh, events at this point. He's standing before the Jewish council and it's chaos. They've got false witnesses in and one guy saying one thing and another guy saying another thing and none of them agree. And the council is looking for a legal reason to execute him. And by legal, don't separate that in your mind from religious because they're not separated in their minds. Okay, legal, religious, it all goes together. But they need a valid reason. And it's at this moment with all this chaos going on in the scene that we're going to pick up reading Mark 14, verse 60. Mark writes this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The high priest here asks him specifically whether or not Jesus, this man standing in front of them, is the very two things that Mark introduces us to him as in Mark chapter 1. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Because he can't say God. Are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? And Jesus' response, (laughs) it is both simple and blasphemous. I am. Um, I hesitate saying this. I'm probably going to get in trouble with like three of you. But Jesus is, is giving them the equivalent of the religious finger here in that statement. I'm not, there's no other way to say it. He is being purposefully offensive to them. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? He could have simply said, uh, yes, that statement is true. I I claim those things. He could have answered yes in any number of ways. He doesn't answer yes in any of those ways. He says, I am, which reminds you of what? God's name in the wilderness. Who should I tell people has sent me? I am has sent me. He answers with God's very name, and then, if that wasn't enough to infuriate them, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. You may not understand that statement fully yet. 
that is not a comforting statement to the high priest, okay? It's basically a threat. I am, and you will see me coming in power in the clouds. He, he has offended them thoroughly at this point. Jesus is a lot of things. He is not a coward, and he was not politically correct. And if you think of him as being a, 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 a quiet guy, kind of off to the side, meek and mild, you don't know Jesus. He's not meek and mild in the moments where he doesn't want to be meek and mild. He gives them the religious finger here. And they're furious. The high priest tears his garments and what are we going to do? Kill him. Kill him. That's the response. It's interesting in a number of respects, and I can't wait to get into this section later on. But for our purposes this morning, it's an interesting interchange because it shows that both Mark and the high priest agree on one thing. That whoever the Christ is, he will be the Son of God. And whoever the Son of God is, he will be the Christ. The only problem, of course, is that they disagree on whether or not this man Jesus is that guy. The high priest doesn't think so. Mark does. And the story he's going to tell us is about a man that is unlike any other man in Mark's mind. He is God in flesh. He is divine, fully man, fully God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This anointed Savior is none other than God himself. Finally, finally, let's talk about the word gospel. I, I, I skipped it on purpose because I don't think we can appreciate what Mark is saying here until you understand all these other things that we've looked at. As I've noted in the not-too-distant past, the word gospel is for us very popular right now, right? There's gospel preaching and gospel parenting and gospel discipleship and so on and so forth. But, but the word gospel itself, I think, confuses people particularly when it is used so much to refer to so many different things. The question before us this morning is, is not how should we understand the word gospel. The question before us is how did Mark understand the word gospel? Why did he choose this word? Of all the words that were at his disposal, why this word to define the story that he's about to tell to his readers? Because the fact of the matter is that when Mark is writing the word gospel is not very popular at all. In fact, it's very rarely used. It's not like it's a Christian word yet. The church is going to take it and use it as its own. But it's a word that's out in the vocabulary of people around him. Why did he, why did he choose it? Well, let's talk about it. Originally, the word gospel referred to a reward, a, a payment, a prize that you would get for bringing good news. That was his earliest meaning, but in time, the reward aspect fell away, and it just came to refer to the good news itself. And we, we hear that, and we think, yeah, I know that. I've heard lots of people define the gospel as good news. I myself have defined it as good news. But, but it begs a question, does it not? What kind of good news? Because there's all kinds of good news in the world. If I've been out all day long and I've been running errands, meeting people over here working or something, and I walk in the door and as soon as I open it, I, I smell that Jamie's been cooking. And I say, Jamie, what's for dinner? And she says, chicken pot pie. That's good news, okay? Because <laughs> she makes the best chicken pot pie in the world. Crisp, flaky crust and that yummy white creamy stuff in the middle. I don't know what that is. And chicken and potatoes and, oh, how many of you are like hungry now? Okay. Oh, I love chicken pot pie. All right. She tells me it's chicken pot pie. That's good news. Or, or if I'm talking to one of you and I know that something's been wrong and you went to the doctor to have some tests run and I say, how did the test come back? And you said, everything came back fine. I'm good. 
That's good news. Or on Wednesday, I was watching the the Blackhawks-Bruins game, and I watched through the whole first overtime, and then I fell asleep, and I went to bed. I got up and went to bed and woke up the next morning to see that they won in triple overtime. That's good news. Or, thank you, or, or if you come and tell me, hey, we're expecting a child, that's, that's good news as well, right? All of those things are good news. There's no question about that to, to some extent or other, but that's the question. They're, they're not all the same type, are they? There's different levels of good news. And the Greeks and Romans had all those same kinds of good news in their world. Food and health and sports and children. All of these events were no doubt good news in their ears, in their minds. And yet, the word gospel, euangelion, would not have been used for any of those things. It was a special word that was pretty much reserved for good news that changed things, that changed reality, good news that changed the world, things like a major military victory. That was gospel. That was good news. Hey, listen, the army defeated the other army. Our army defeated that army, and and our lives are going to continue. Our culture will continue. Our children will grow up. That's gospel. That's good news. It changes situation, the situation for us. We're not worried anymore. Or uh, perhaps the birth or ascension of a new emperor was gospel, because remember, they think he's God. Hey, there's a new emperor who's been born. He's come to power. This is gospel. This is good news. The world's about to change because we have this new emperor. It's gospel. And so for Mark to use this word in describing the story that he's about to tell us, shows us what he really believes about this man, Jesus. This man, Jesus, this story about Jesus, this anointed Savior who is God come in the flesh to save mankind from their sins, this is a story that will change the world forever. That's why, that's why I said to you last week, it's not a biography. He's not writing these things so that you understand details about the life of Jesus. That's not his point at all. Nor is it a history. He's not simply trying to record events as they occurred in time. This story is gospel. It is the good news of something that has happened that will change the world forever. What I love most about this opening verse is that it clarifies things for us very quickly about this book. Mark believes that this story is gospel, that it's good news that will change the world. And you can accept that or you can reject it, either one. But one way or the other, you have to make a decision about the news he's going to tell us. You you can't simply listen to it and go, well, okay, that was nice. I'm, I'm moving on. It was just a good story. It's not simply a story. If the story he's telling is true, it changes everything. If it's a lie, then it's fiction. Go on about your business. One way or the other, you've got to make a call. You've got to make a decision. And this gospel that he's going to tell us is not actually about an event. It's about a person. It's the gospel of Jesus It's not the gospel of his death or the gospel of his resurrection. It's the gospel of Jesus. He himself is the good news that will change the world. Obviously, what he does is going to matter very much. Mark's not denying that. But what Mark wants us to to understand at the beginning is that more important than what he does is who he is. He is God in flesh who has come to be the anointed Savior of mankind. Mark has completely spoiled the story for us. Now we know exactly who this guy is, who in just a few verses, verse 14, is going to stand on a hillside in Galilee and say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
What gospel? The gospel about himself. Now we know things about him that nobody in the story is going to know yet. None of them. When he starts calling his disciples to him, they don't know who he is. We do. When, when he preaches to the people, they're not sure what to make of this guy. We are. And when he dies on the cross, most of the people standing around him will not understand the significance of that event. But we will. It will take the characters in the story some time to come to understand the very points that Mark has laid out for us at the beginning. But they will figure it out. Remember how I told you that the story can be broken up like this and the main, main section is broken into two parts, his ministry in Galilee and his journey to the cross? It's interesting to me that at the end of each of these two main parts, there is a confession, a realization by someone in the story that will affirm what we now know right off the bat. In chapter 8, verse 27, right at the end of part 1, his ministry there in Galilee, we read this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Aha, Peter gets it. He affirms one major component of, of, that Mark has told us here at the very beginning, that this man, Jesus, he's the Christ. Aha! I, he gets it now. now. Now look at this. Near the end of part two, his journey to the cross, we read this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man is who? Son of God. Aha! The centurion gets it now. A Jew, the Jewish disciples, they got it. Now the Roman centurion, he gets it. He affirms another component of what we were told at the very beginning. Jesus is the Son of God. He, he gets it. And it's going to take these characters in the story some time to figure these things out. But, but for us, Mark has made it clear right at the very beginning. Jesus is God. Come in flesh as the anointed Savior. Of mankind. This is a, an amazing beginning to his book. This is the beginning of the gospel that he wants to tell us about this man, Jesus. It's an amazing statement then. It's an amazing statement now. And, and we can reject it if we like. Hopefully we'll accept it. But one thing we cannot do, one thing, listen to this very carefully and I'm done. We cannot downplay it, trivialize it, or ignore it because this man, Jesus, is unlike any other man. Jesus, we... We recognize the significance of this opening verse. That here Mark has laid down the gauntlet. He has drawn a clear line in the sand. We can believe this or we can reject it. But we cannot simply listen to it and walk away. He has made a claim that you are not like anyone else. That you are actually God. You are divine. That you came in flesh to be the Savior, the anointed Savior of all mankind to pay for our sins. If this is true, we must respond. 
You, you must be our Lord. We must live our lives for you if this, if this opening statement is true. And Lord, we believe it is. Throughout the course of this book, we will see the characters within the book coming to understand these things that we now know right off the bat. And so, whereas they may have had excuses for their ignorance, we have none. Where they may have reasons for not obeying and, and responding in the right ways at points, we have none because we see who you are clearly here at the beginning. Jesus, please help us to respond correctly. Please help us to see these truths and to respond to you because you are God. You are our Savior. You are the promised anointed one. And every hope we have begins and ends in you. And so we give you this message. We give you this time. We ask that your spirit will impress it on our hearts that we will not trivialize you any longer. We'll be confronted with who you really are like we never have been before. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.